Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Voices of Santa Clara podcast. I'm your host, Gavin Cosgrave. And on the show, I normally interview a student, a staff member, or professor, or alumni uh, person at Santa Clara University. But today's a little different. I'm still working on some editing and in the middle of a couple projects, uh, rearranging a few things for the future. Today, instead, I'm going to do a little episode of just me talking about six things on my mind. Why the number six, you might ask? A very fair question. When I imagined a, a threshold of what um, any listener would think would be interesting to hear, and then I thought of all the things in my mind, only six of them uh, crossed the threshold of interesting. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. A few of the six things relate to books I've been reading or classes I'm taking. A few of them are uh, poems or articles I've found. Some of them relate to Santa Clara. Some of them are more broad um, human experiences. And yeah, so let's just dive in. Okay, number one. To start on the most cheery note possible, the first thing on my mind is suffering. Yes, suffering. And here I'm thinking about suffering not in relation to the world, that there's plenty of suffering in the world, but more uh, in the context of our own lives and thinking about our own lives. So as I might have mentioned before, I'm currently taking this class called Conscientious Capitalism, which should be called Conscientious Leadership, which is about uh, reflecting on your own personal journey to realize your your challenges, your gifts, and how you can be an effective leader in the world. Um, and in the past couple weeks, I've been thinking a lot about my life story and about how I've learned and grown from different life events, and especially uh, suffering is what we've something we've been encouraged to think about in the past. Um, and I feel uh, pretty fortunate that I've lived, you know, a pretty lucky life. I've had a very stable family situation, had really quality mentors, teachers, and coaches, both in elementary, junior high, high school, kind of all the way through. Um, so compared to a lot of people with uh, challenging family situations or who, um, you know, grew up really poor and had to fend for themselves for a young age or maybe only had a single parent in the household, um, compared to all of those situations, I've, I've had it pretty easy, right? Uh, there were some more difficult times like around the end of junior high, beginning of high school, when kind of my my sports career was coming to an end. Uh, no matter how hard I worked at baseball, I couldn't uh, win the approval of the coach. Um, and that was a real uh, just difficult kind of demoralizing time. And then at school, I had just uh, gone to a new campus in 10th grade and didn't really have any, any friends that I could be vulnerable with. So I was around people, but um, alone at the same time. And yes, this was not the greatest period in my life. Um, certainly glad it's over, but everything kind of got resolved. I wasn't scarred or traumatized, and uh, things really improved after that in the next couple years of high school. But again, I think I'm, I'm also realizing that's a fairly atypical experience, and a lot of people do have bigger, uh, bigger challenges that they face. And so in our, in our class, in the context of our class, I think it's important to uh, to kind of be realistic about the role of suffering in our life. Like, I think it's easy to romanticize uh, people overcoming odds to become excellent leaders. Like in our class, we looked at the life and upbringing of S Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz, and he had a, a difficult upbringing in New York um, in the projects and learned to empathize with a lot of people. And his, his dad was unable to provide for their family and was kind of a failure at, at work. And then 
then um, according to our case study, uh, Howard kind of reframed all these challenges to you know better lead and empathize with people and become a great leader. And you know that's that's great for him and a lot of. Uh, a lot of leaders do face adversity that strengthens them. Um, but also, I think it's important to recognize just how many people grew up in a similar situation to Howard and dropped out of high school and are maybe um, even in in prison or have mental health difficulties or really weren't able to overcome their their challenges. And there's and we, we, we never hear their stories, and there's probably plenty more of them. So, uh, yeah, I'm kind of thinking about what's the, the healthy way to look at struggles in our life. Um, and when you, listener, think of uh, impactful events that kind of shaped who you are, um, I'm curious, you know, are more of them uh, struggles you overcame or, or positive events? Because I, I do think the times I've grown the most are from discomfort and challenge. Um, and that's that's happened a lot in, in, in college. And I'm sure uh, plenty more will happen once I'm out in in the working world, taking on more of other people's problems. Um, but yeah, I'm kind of wondering: is suffering and challenge the only way to grow, or are there are there others? Can we can we read books? Can we talk to friends? Can we learn from the suffering of others? Uh, can we try to be healthy in as many areas of our life as possible, so that when we do encounter suffering and challenge, we can be in an effective place to to cope with it? Um, yeah, th- these are all kind of questions on my mind. All right, enough on the first point of of suffering. <laughs> Okay, number two. Um, unfortunately, it's kind of related to the first. Uh, we'll get we'll get more cheery later, perhaps. Um, second is mental health. So the reason I'm thinking about mental health is because uh, the. Uh, the the counseling center at, at Santa Clara just sent everyone an email and basically the gist of it was, hey, we're really sorry uh, that we only have like three psychologists total for everyone at Santa Clara. Uh, so that's why the wait times are really long. There's kind of a shortage. Um, and here's a big list of like resources and online websites and campus ministry programs and um, other things like that that you can hopefully use in the in the interim as you wait and as we try to hire more psychologists. So first of all, three psychologists for 5,000 undergrads and 8,000 total students. Like I was trying to do the math and I was thinking, okay, so if, if like one tenth of students needed to be uh, seeing a, a therapist, which is a pretty small number compared to like when you look at the stats for anxiety and depression and things like that in college, they're they're pretty high. So I think one tenth is a very conservative number. But if that were the case, then there would be, I don't know, 700 or 800 students at Santa Clara who would need counseling. And if those three people were really productive and able to, you know, see 100 people per week, then that would be like one eighth of what was needed. Uh, and then if, you know, if we raised it to, to, uh, two tenths or, or 30% of students that needed to see a counselor, then suddenly, you know, Santa Clara would be prepared to handle one twentieth of the, the capacity. So that's pretty, pretty crazy. I came across a stat that said in a nationwide survey of college students, uh, about 64% said they felt very lonely in the past 12 months. So, you know, that's not a perfect proxy for needing to see um, a, a psychologist. Mental health as a challenge facing especially college-age students has just really increased in the last 20 or so years. And uh, on one hand, it's good that 
there's maybe less of a stigma around getting help um, and that's you know that's great and positive so that people can get the support they need but but also uh, there's you know there's been cultural shifts and uh, you know social media and technology don't help right instead of playing on your human tendency to compare yourself to your immediate friends suddenly you're comparing yourself to uh, the entire world right and and instead of being a big fish in a small pond you're a small fish in a big pond and when you add that on top of the anxiety producing effects of screens as well as uh, the potential to decrease social like actual real world social interaction on social media i think you know that's that's one factor impacting uh, anxiety and depression um, but yeah it's it's also just in in thinking about the the culture we create at at colleges right like we want to be really supportive um of students that are going through difficult things but we also want a culture in college where uh, you can we can have difficult conversations people can disagree with other people's ideas without um, attacking them as a person and and we can hear difficult feedback about ourselves without uh, internalizing that feedback to our uh core identity, right? We can discuss ideas separate from who we are. And sometimes those ideas will be the opposite of what, what someone else believes. And um, it's, it's much easier to kind of go along with, with the crowd, but that's not the, the most true and honest way to, to live and to have a, an intellectual uh, culture, right? So yeah, just thinking about mental health, what are the, the best solutions? How do we, um, on an individual and societal level, uh, think about mental health, especially in college age students, and what are the the best paths forward to try to uh, have as many uh, healthy people as as possible because um, physical, you know if you if you break your arm, you're gonna get help. it's it's obvious, it's visible, right? But um, arguably a much more important uh, part of health is is your mind, right? That, that tells you stories about who you are all day long. and if that's not in a healthy place, then that's probably much more challenging in most cases than a, a physical injury that we can we can see and we've been practicing treating for uh, thousands of years. So yeah, number two, mental health. All right, third topic is awareness. So awareness both as a as a concept of you know self-awareness, awareness of the world, also awareness is the title of this this book by uh, a Jesuit priest named Anthony DeMello that keeps popping up. So um, I'm just going to start by reading a story from a little anecdote from this book, and uh, then we can discuss after. All right. A man born blind comes to me and asks, what is this thing called green? How does one describe the color green to someone who was born blind? One uses analogies. So I say, the color green is something like soft music. Oh, he says, like soft music. Yes, I say, soothing and soft music. So a second blind man comes to me and asks, what is the color green? I tell him it's something like soft satin, very soft and soothing to the touch. So the next day, I noticed that the two blind men are bashing each other over the head with bottles. Wow. One is saying, it's soft like music. And the other is saying, it's soft like satin. And on it goes. Neither of them knows what they're talking about, because if they did, they'd shut up. It's as bad as that. It's even worse, because, say, one day you give sight to this blind man, and he's sitting there in the garden, and he's looking all around him, and you say to him, well, now you know what the color green is. And he answers, that's true. I heard it this morning. So I thought that's a really 
interesting story, uh, both in the in kind of the the spiritual way of thinking about what does it mean about God and what does it mean about about us and our knowledge and humility, but also just thinking, you know, how many how many things in the world and in our lives are there that that we see the way that we want to see them um, and not the way that they actually are, right? How how are we like uh, the blind man who is in in this beautiful lush garden with with green all around us and we have no idea what what green is? Um, another metaphor that this this book used was being in um, like sitting in a concert hall at a symphony performance and and you're um, and there's all these instruments and you're taking in all this music and then you remember uh, that you're you left your your phone in the car and you're like uh oh you know what if what if someone steals it or I forget if I did, did I lock the car and then suddenly you can't you can't hear and appreciate any of that that symphony um, any of the the notes and the music around you right and uh, similarly we're in the midst of a symphony. This this life is a symphony. And so much of the time we spend uh, worrying about things we can't control, things far off, uh, things that take us out of, of the moment. Um, so the, the kind of the whole goal of this uh, framework of awareness that uh, DeMello talks about is um, once you drop your, your disordered attachments, once you drop your need to conform to what other people think about you and seek praise and gain material status and all these uh, desires that might be well-intentioned but are so so easily like corrupt our behavior and lead us to be anxious and concerned and lead our happiness to go up and down based on what someone else says or if we if we win the award or if we're better than other people once you uh, drop all these then you can be free and then you can be happy and then um, as you as you lose yourself you can uh, gain yourself so that's our third topic awareness All right, number four is going to be a couple poems. Um, in the month of December, I did some poetry writing, so I'll read one of those. But we're going to start with um, a really beautiful poem by this author, uh, Mark Nepo, that uh, I heard from a professor at the end of our uh, class last quarter. So the poem's called Accepting This. Yes, it is true, I confess. I have thought great thoughts and sung great songs, all of it, Rehearsal for the majesty of being held. The dream is awakened when thinking, I love you, and life begins when saying, I love you, and joy moves like blood when embracing others with love. My efforts now turn from trying to outrun suffering to accepting love wherever I can find it. Stripped of causes and plans and things to strive for, I have discovered everything I could need or ask for, is right here, in flawed abundance. We cannot eliminate hunger, but we can feed each other. We cannot eliminate loneliness, but we can hold each other. We cannot eliminate pain, but we can live a life of compassion. Ultimately, we are small living things, awakened in the stream, not gods who carve out rivers. Like human fish, we are asked to experience meaning in the life that moves through the gill of our heart. There is nothing to do and nowhere to go. Accepting this, we can do everything and go anywhere. All right, so that's Mark Nepo. That's the first poem. Um, and now I'm going to read uh, a poem I wrote called Nostalgia and Anticipation. The threshold between nostalgia and anticipation is a tender hug, like a mother dropping her son off at college. 
remembering when he couldn't walk, crying when he ran away, cheering when he won the prize, proud when he chose to say, I love you, to her, to himself, to us, to this, to tensions and midpoints and rainstorms and mist. The threshold between nostalgia and anticipation is white space, like at the bottom of your camera roll, thumb scrolling through the past, heart honoring what has passed, mind imagining what's ahead, creating futures in my head, then white, the end, your turn, live. The threshold between nostalgia and anticipation is your dog, as you try and fail to walk her by your side. There's always a sight, there's always a smell, she's in front or behind, though you trained her so well. You tell her to sit, you give her a treat, you stroke her fur, your work is complete, and she's one step closer by your side, for now, walking the threshold. The threshold between nostalgia and anticipation is washing dishes after breakfast on Christmas morning. Soap, rinse, dry, repeat, time for gifts, take your seat, open the card first, and read it. I promise it's better than what's in the box. The threshold between nostalgia and anticipation is this whole four years for me and for you and for all of our peers trying to look cool and figure out careers through the heartbreaks and hangovers and happiness and tears. Oh, it's hard to hold the tensions, to leap into the unseen, to risk getting rejected, to walk in between childhood and your 20s, being free and being frozen in a box of expectations that you have never chosen. Hold the tension. The threshold between nostalgia and anticipation is the eternal now. All right, topic number five is based on an article I wrote for the opinion section of the Santa Clara student newspaper this past week about uh, making friends in college. So it's called A Fresh Take on Building Friendships in College. And I'll just kind of give you the gist of what I talked about. And this topic has been on my mind because of that. So in high school, people often have, you know, consistent friend groups. They're maybe involved in several extracurricular activities that have been consistent for the past four, eight, ten years. Um, and, yeah, by the time you're a senior in high school, for, for, for most people, it's just a really solid social time. And you have great, great friends, great connections. Um, and then you're dumped suddenly into the, the wide open spaces of, of college and uh, freshman year. And people quickly realize they, they need a group, right? And the most common ways to remedy this uh, companionship crisis is to uh, join something fast, right? Or to um, just become friends with whoever lives close to you. Um, and this is these are the most common ways that students make friends early on in college, right? You join a club, you join a fraternity or sorority, um, or you just become friends with whoever happens to live near you. Um, and I think for a lot of especially first-year students, but this is common throughout college. Uh, th there's so many people that it's easy to confuse proximity and closeness, right? Like, you, you can be surrounded by people, but emotionally alone. And, and making close, deep friendships can be a real challenge throughout college. And many people do make great friends, but a lot of people have, have some friends and simultaneously uh, crave more, more close friendships. And, you know, I've felt that way throughout college, though. Uh, now I feel, you know, really, really lucky that that I do have so many close friends. But, you know, even even now, I think it's it's just so common for everyone to kind of have this desire for closeness with others. Um, so how do we 
how do you make friends in college? Uh, if you're not in college, you can still just listen and enjoy. So here's my my three three step process because everything complex and difficult in life can be boiled down to a three step process. Uh, so first. You need like a wide base of people you know, of acquaintances who aren't close friends, um, just to kind of identify uh, who's out there and who you can be yourself around. So you might uh, join just a ton of things. Go go on an outdoors trip, apply to be on the leadership board of a club. Uh, Santa Clara has some great like immersion trips and r- retreats. You can play an intramural sport. Uh, I just played my first soccer game in 12 years last night and got a solid uh, team win, so felt really good about that. Um, or you, you can go do events in your dorm or residence hall. And in the beginning, it'll it can be tough, right? Because you only probably will have a lot of these surface level friendships, but these are kind of seeds that can later uh, sprout and become deeper friendships. So then the second step, once you feel like you you know a lot of people, at least on some surface level, is to kind of realize that you have the, the control and the power to um, initiate um, and actively create your, your social situation, your, your inner and middle and outer circles of, of friendships. And different people will occupy different roles in your life. And sometimes people will want to be your friends and sometimes they won't. But uh, I, th- I think people really appreciate uh, when others actively reach out. So yeah, so make a list of people you know from um, from wherever that you want to become closer with and just text them and reach out and ask to hang out. And this can be scary because there's a there's a fear of, of rejection. You know, what if they don't want to be my friends? But um, and I think I've felt that at times in in college as well, of wondering if I'm reaching out more than other people. Um, and that can lead to being anxious. But I think then once you're once you're with people, if you have any emotional intelligence, you can pretty quickly tell if they want to be there or not, right? And you can adjust accordingly. So you might have some some false starts, some friendships that naturally become uninteresting or uh, fizzle out. But I think beautiful friendships are usually born of intentional effort. So that's number two. And then third, um, and perhaps most importantly, maybe this is almost first, but learn to befriend yourself. Um, A friend recently told me that uh, one thing her mom had told her was uh, the longest friendship you'll have in life is with yourself. And I think that's that's so true. Like if you pursue friendship from a a place of of emptiness where you uh, need others, then you're relationships can kind of become transactional. But if you're secure in your identity, you can love your friends not for what they do for you or how they make you feel, but for who they are. And instead of instead of saying, oh, this person has the power to make me happy. And if they say yes, then I'll feel good. If they say no, then I'll feel bad. Instead of that, you can think uh, when we spend time together, we, we feel happy. And um, it doesn't have to be your, your your mood doesn't have to go on a roller coaster based on what other people think of you. Um, and yeah, so I think another kind of fun note on friendships in college is that I think it's cool to have both a balance of um, planned and spontaneous uh, social interactions. Like one kind of fun part about college and is just creating memorable experiences that might be like, you know, for me, a random group of people going to uh, Yosemite or a late night trip driving around somewhere. And these are kind of the the random whimsical uh, college experiences that I think are really memorable. So, um, yeah, those are 
a few notes on on friendship. And I think throughout life, it's it's just such a such a challenge, something that people don't talk about a lot. Everyone wants to be loved and accepted, and um, yeah, actively creating your your friend circle, and then also being okay when things shift over time and not clinging to to people because um, you can be secure in your own identity and kind of trust that people will be around you that you can reach out to and be present with in the moment um, can be a healthy way to hold friendship. All right, last piece here, number six, is uh, politics, fun stuff. So uh, this this note is inspired by a post on my favorite blog, Wait But Why. So this guy, Tim Urban, is writing a series um, on pretty much all of, like, human development and life and thinking and it's tying into politics quite a bit but here's the the core idea that i've gotten out of it so far i haven't had time to read the whole thing um but in thinking about the political spectrum right we usually we usually think about uh, right to left right are you conservative or liberal um and that can be helpful for discovering what someone thinks, right? I mean, it might be true that you conform to certain beliefs of one party and don't to certain beliefs of the other. But for for simplicity's sake, let's just say that, you know, on any given issue, there's there's a whole spectrum and the extremes are so crazy that you would never mention them. And um, even within the middle, there's uh, there's a, a range of beliefs, but people kind of conform into two, two distinct uh, parties, at least in the United States, right? Which is really not a great thing. It kind of plays on our natural human tendency to be tribalistic and to create groups and say, I'm in and you're out. Those people are the other and I'm the the one who's right. I'm uh, good. You're you're bad. And that's um, a really vast oversimplification of the truth. And by empathizing with people, we can more likely understand where they're coming from, how their life has influenced what they think. Um, And yes, that's kind of the normal political spectrum, right? What you think. But what if we add a second uh, axis, a vertical axis, a y-axis to um, to this political spectrum, and instead of what you think, it's how you think. So this author Tim Urban talks about four four levels of of thinking. Uh, he calls it the thinking ladder, and um, on the bottom of the ladder, your motivation is confirmation, like confirmation bias. You're only seeking out information that uh, confirms what you already think. And at the top, the intellectual motivation is truth. Um, so he calls the bottom uh, thinking like a zealot, which means your your beliefs won't change regardless of what you hear. Um, and there's you know plenty of people, uh, politically especially, who uh, think like zealots, right? Who don't don't want to listen to the other side or someone with a different view than them. Uh, the, the the next view up is thinking like an attorney, uh, which means that you know you're you're smart, you're considering evidence, but ultimately you already know your side, and uh, you're going to present evidence that fits your side. One level up above that is thinking like a sports fan, um, and that means you you know you might consider information and be critically thinking, but you still have, you still have a team, right? You're not, uh, you know, your team may win or lose sometimes, but ultimately you're really still, uh, you still have some confirmation bias in you and you're, you're going to root for your team, uh, almost no matter what. And then the top level is thinking like a scientist where you develop a hypothesis and you prepare to be wrong and you test your hypothesis in the real world and you're not holding to one belief, but you're open to pursuing truth. 
So I think if you add the second axis on, then suddenly you're not just evaluating people based on what they think politically, right, but how they think. Um, and you can apply this to other areas of life, but we'll just focus on, on politics for here, right? If people or news outlets were more concerned with how they were presenting arguments and evidence instead of being tied to one specific outcome at the beginning, then we could have better conversations. Um, we might end up in a more centrist place on some issues. We might end up uh, more to the right or to the left on the what you think spectrum on others. But uh, having a, a view where you're, you know, you're putting together a hypothesis and your reasoning, and you're not just uh, gathering only information that confirms with what you previously believe, but uh, you're you're thinking like a scientist, you're putting puzzle pieces together, and you're evaluating the world kind of from a fresh perspective and trying to see see things as they are and not how you want them to be. If we all took this view, uh, yeah, we could have a world with better conversations and we could perhaps more effectively collaborate to solve the biggest problems of our time because ultimately collaboration is going to matter a ton, right? Like we can have uh, climate change predictions about what will happen to the world, but but none of those predictions take into account how humans will respond and if if the big issues of our time can unite us together to form solutions, then uh, we could have totally different outcomes than what models are currently predicting or what happens if these issues drive us apart like we see little pieces of evidence for that today. But um, yeah, so that's that's the the vertical political spectrum. Let's think about how you think and not just what you think. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. You can go to voicesofsantaclara.com to read a partial transcript of this episode, follow on Twitter at voicesofscu or leave a review on the Apple Podcast app. I'll see you next time.